I think we're at a point where they really need the private sector to step up and Main Street. We just have to be there to meet the moment, professional, data-driven, to be there, that trusted advisor at the local level. Believe me, Wall Street's not there and they're not doing it. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Aaron Norris, a very experienced real estate investor. And today we're digging into a few different topics, including build to rent housing. We're digging into accessory dwelling units, ADUs, which you may not be familiar with, but he believes there's a lot of opportunity there, particularly in California. And we also talk about opportunity zone investing, which was very popular, very talked about right when Opportunity Zone legislation passed. And it's kind of waned over the last few years, but that doesn't mean that there isn't still opportunity. So we're covering that as well. A lot of great information in here. Aaron has a very extensive track record as a real estate investor. So tons of knowledge. You're going to learn a lot. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically in apartment building and self-storage syndications. If you're interested in learning more and potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call with me. I will look forward to speaking with you then. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. People see your reviews and they think, hey, this person learned something from this show. Maybe I will learn something as well. And you know what? I see your reviews. I get to see that you're learning from the show. And I really appreciate that you're helping us grow the show and rank higher in the Apple Podcast space. Appreciate that so, so much. No matter what podcast app you use, if you haven't done so yet, do look us up and hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Don't forget to share the show with someone. If you do know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, bring them into the tribe and help them grow their wealth on Main Street as well. Once again, our guest today is Aaron Norris. We have a few different topics we're covering for you today. Without any further ado, here we go. Aaron, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. For our listeners out there who don't know about you, your background, and your business, can you tell us a bit about what you do and how you are involved in the real estate game? Sure. I'm finishing up a two-year stint at Property Radar, which is how we initially got connected. So Property Radar is an enhanced public records platform for not just real estate professionals, it's actually for any small business. And I'm here for Main Street. So part of my job has been to teach nationwide how to really get small businesses to think about data. And they don't know what words like demographic means and why I would care about that kind of stuff. Mortgage data, sales transactions, over a billion and emails and phone records. It's so cool. And I've been a longtime user and that's how I met Sean O'Toole, the owner. I also have also been part of the family business for over 15 years. We do hard money in California and Florida. We build the rent in Florida. We flip houses in Florida. We used to flip into California. And a lot of what we do is based on market timing. So we've been around since 97. And I work a lot with media, keeps them from writing really bad stories. A data nerd. So not afraid to work with the best of the best. I think last year was probably one of the coolest things. I alerted Bloomberg News and they wrote a story on iBuyer and what they were doing, sending iBuyers were sending off-market deals to institutional buyers, completely off-market, so nobody was talking about it. And the problem with that is the way media covers it. Maybe we'll talk about that, but it drives me nuts. <laughs> so. Awesome. 
Awesome. Well, there's so much that we can talk about. And, and Sean has been on the show in the past, had a great conversation with him. So, you know, we can put the link in the show notes for others who might want to dig into that discussion. So first, can you tell us about you know, your real estate investing background, especially, you know, investing in Florida from Southern California? I mean, I think mm-hmm. folks might hear that and say, wow, how does he do that? Oh, I'm very conservative. Let's start with that up front. I learned that from my dad. Conservative just meaning, you know, I don't like to gamble. I'm a buy and hold investor. I don't like flipping. I think that was the biggest mistake I made. I'm a retired actor from New York City. Even though I've been flipping houses since the age of five with my dad, I decided to go a different route. But while I was in New York City, I fell into Wall Street. I did acquisition and merger presentations for a major investing firm, and I liked it. I was like, oh no, I've got problems. (laughs) Very right left brain. So I actually came back to California in 04 to my mom had a stage four cancer diagnosis. And luckily she was around for six years. We really enjoyed our time together. And somehow I ended up in the family business. I never thought I was going to be back in real estate. So I started small. So I started buying houses in 2010 and slowly building a portfolio and doing side notes on the side. So it's been fun. I've got a portfolio, half of it's in California, half of it's in Florida, all single family residential at this point. I'm almost finished with my condos. I hate condos. I hate (laughs) HOAs. And then I do private notes, construction notes and hard money. So I'm a licensed in California broker, MLO in Florida and California. So that's what keeps me busy. I've always got something going on. My side hustle is real estate outside of the company handling, you know, hard money and construction. Awesome. Okay. You mentioned one thing in particular, build to rent in Florida. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're I think we're hearing more and more about that. You know, prices are ridiculously high. People are having a tough time finding rentals that will cash flow. Can you tell us mm-hmm. more about that business model, you know, and how that works? Yeah, it's not an easy business model. And I think we don't run a turnkey operations. At the Norris Group, we have clients that we've had for sometimes over 20 years. When you teach people how to educate, the goal is to get them to the point where they're successful enough to where they need hard money. And hopefully they're so successful at flipping and building wealth that eventually they end up lending you their money. So these are people with large portfolios that we help to get in the California market after a report we call rewrote called the California Crash. Why? We thought prices were going to half in California. We released that in 06. So we got a lot of people out of harm's way. And then we started raising capital in 09 because the opportunity, even in California, was just bizarre. So we have investors that are sitting on properties they bought for $50,000 from 2009 in California. That's you know, are you missing a zero? No, you were in certain areas of California, like in the Inland Empire, Sacramento, Fresno, Bakersfield. Those were opportunities that were there. Those have since 10x. It doesn't mean those areas have 10x in niceness or quality. So what they're looking at is 1031 exchanging. And that's exactly what I did. I'll give you a personal example. I bought a condo in Corona, California for I think around 70 grand. I've been holding it since 2012. It's 4x. I was able to turn that condo 1031 exchange into a brand new construction build. The condo in, in Corona was behind on rent, but it was $1,150 with a $350 HOA. I moved to a brand new house with a much different clientele that now gets $2,295 in rent with no HOA. 
and I'm not managing it anymore. So it was a play to diversify into a more landlord-friendly state, better hold product. I don't have repairs on it where the condo was built in the late 70s. So it did. So it's just strategically upgrading and diversifying. That's what we're doing with all of our clients for the most part. There's nobody going with us to Florida right now who are like, I'm just looking to start to invest. The numbers really don't work for what we're building. It just doesn't. Cash flow is hard to find. So we have to get more creative. Interesting. So I guess, what do you mean by that numbers don't really... Well, a lot of first-time people who want to get into real estate are taking on a lot of leverage. And in states Mm -hmm. like California, where property taxes are are around 2%, you know, it's a different ballgame. One of the interesting things in Florida that I found is that when you build from scratch, the local appraiser, the county appraiser, isn't giving full retail value to what you're paying in property taxes, which is interesting because I bought both retail and I built from the ground up. And... There's about a $100,000 difference so far what I've been able to see going through that process. So it's weird. So instead of getting property tax based on a 350 valuation, I got my latest one at 187. I I have no idea where they came up with that, but that's a big deal when you're paying 2%. That adds up. So yeah, the numbers, it just, it's getting harder because of the pandemic. A lot of people are moving to where we're building in Florida from the Northeast. So they're looking at the prices down there going like, well, this is nothing. I'm used to spending four to five grand a month for a studio apartment in New York city. Yeah. Those that's going to buy you a million dollar property (laughs) and sort of where we're building. So it's not easy. It's, it's hard. There's just a run to Florida. They were the number one net migration and, and, and number one immigration state. So we look at data, we try to find out where people are going. And let's be honest, we're also very comfortable. We've been there since Hurricane Andrew in 1990 as a family building. Some of our best friends live there. So it's where we're comfortable. I think that's really important. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So I would imagine also, you know, all the supply chain issues and inflation and everything that everybody's talking about these days factors into that a lot. In addition to mm-hmm. the number of people just migrating there as owner occupants, right? Adding the competition. Yeah. We're really known in California and people sometimes just follow a site unseen and they don't know why they're doing that. They're doing it's just that the Norris group is, does it. So we should do it too. <laughs> and I had this conversation actually last month an investor followed us out there, bought 12 houses in an area we would not touch because it's known for being bad. And that's not why we're there. He's like, I'm going to buy a hundred lots and I'm going to build. And I was like, will you call me? I was like, what are you doing? (laughs) And the conversation I told him about a stepping in it, we had a huge problem with the first builder that we selected. We thought we were doing everything right. We were using funds control and the builder misspent millions of dollars. And we, when COVID first hit, we had to sit between 66 projects and 22 investors and 38 subs who didn't know me from Adam and we had to get through it together. And we did it without attorneys, but I was talking to a hundred people every day. We did a forensic audit. I touched tens of thousands of pieces of paper and it's the most stressful experience I've ever gone through. If you're going to play the construction game right now, you, it is full-time job. You're having to order appliances 10 months before you need them. You have to be working with somebody that is not new. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it's dangerous. So unless you're going to show up and pay full retail for something already construction and you're fine with that, that is the safest bet. (laughs) If you're planning on getting the construction game, like, hold on, it's still a wild ride. And I suspect wages will be the issue this year. Mm, So urging a a lot of caution to especially Mm. new folks that are getting into the 
new property. I mean, you mentioned wages being the issue. You mean wages of you know laborers to you know contractors, whatever, to actually build the properties, right? Yeah. When you build with us, it's not a set price. In order for you to get a discount on the build, you are in the big boy, big girl investor club. That means when the investor gets inflation and prices, those those are passed on to you because you're an investor, you know, and we don't expect the builder to go out of business. That's not acceptable. Mm-hmm. So there's a few times where every other month there's a price increase and some of it's really big. One of the most interesting things that happened late last year is our builder negotiated with Block. So in Florida, we built with Block because of hurricane regulation. And the builder said, I'm going to overpay you a little bit, but it means I don't want to hear from you in six months. And at the time, the Block laborers were like, this is rad, of course. <laughs> Two months later, wouldn't you know that they stopped showing up to the job? They were milking it because they had gotten another raise from other people willing to pay more. So when they were showing up to their jobs, they were still committed to ours. We just weren't a priority. So you have to be willing to play the game. <laughs> it's it's rough. Yeah. So, okay. Speaking of, you know, costs, this is one of the things that we hear about Florida in particular is, you know, insurance rates going up there very considerably. Mm-hmm. You know, they're kind of going up everywhere, right? But Florida everywhere. in particular. Well, we, we had a 40% hard. increase in price in our area in one year. I mean, the rent that I got, the house that I just built, it's a, got a, I think I, I, around 280 all in or 260, 280, I forget. I thought it was going to rent for 1700 in August. It ran in for 2295 in January. It's that hot that fast. I'm almost uncomfortable talking about it. Florida is just that hot. Do I think it'll stay hot like that forever? No, but that's not why I'm there. I'm not speculating. I moved that money from California. It's a 1031 exchange. I'm very calm and collected. If it goes down, I'm cool. I thought I was going to get $1,700 and I was fine with it. So it's just, you have to understand the dynamics going on in these areas. And Florida is a big state. I mean, depending on where you decide to invest, there's a lot of nuance. You really have to understand environmental. You really have to understand flood zones and what that might look like, especially in California. I take investors out and they're very concerned about global warming. And you talk to locals and it's funny. It's just a thing. The builder stuff is a challenge. I mean, we're having to import block from other states. They're so busy right now. So it's a challenge for sure. And insurance has gone up. I think I went from $700 to $900, but the prices have gone up by a hundred grand. So I'm really not that surprised. Mm, okay. Okay. Interesting. So you called the California, you know, price crash just prior to the great recession. And here you've mentioned a few numbers, you know, with rents going up and everything in Florida, but on a gross level, I mean, you're still talking about a brand new house in the $300,000 range. I mean, that is very reasonable. I, you know, are you expecting a similar price crash? Everybody's thinking about, you know, are we heading for the next great recession, blah, blah, blah. It kind of sounds like you're cautious about how fast the numbers have gone up, but also feel like this is a different situation than just prior to the Great Recession. Would you agree, disagree? What are your thoughts? I, I agree. You know, we studied a lot. The California crash was not a small report. It was a 400-page report. And wow. what we did for our investors was just say, here's all the data that we're looking at, and here's why we're doing it. If you can come up with something else based on this data, I mean, it costs thousands and thousands of dollars to pull out this data together. Very unique. And it was specific to California. Not every state mimics California. But we just don't have a lot of things in play. We don't have the mortgages. You can't breathe and just get a 500000 loan just because <laughs> the builders didn't overbuild. They're building the suit instead of building neighborhoods and then releasing them. And that's very different than what happened during the downturn before because those last homes that were finished, they undercut and immediately buried 
everybody they had just sold the home to. We're up 20% in just a year nationwide. So it's not a foreclosure. The foreclosures we're seeing now are stuff that should have happened in 2020. There was just a moratorium. We have the playbook from 2008 of how to keep people in their home when their values have gone down by half. Do you really think, I don't care what party you're affiliated with, do you really think politicians at this moment in history with a war going on and the coronavirus that we're going to allow a huge wave of foreclosures? I don't. And we have the playbook to stop it. So no, I think people who should get foreclosed on will eventually get foreclosed on, but just not anytime soon. I don't see that being an issue. We've got millennials into getting off their parents' couch for the first time because they're like, (laughs) oh yeah, being married and having kids, I'd like my own space. So there is a genuine need for housing. I think that's why you see institutional investors going all in and raising billions of dollars to take this on for sure. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So earlier on, you mentioned being an opportunistic, if I'm recalling a term, I believe you used that term, opportunistic type of investor, or you go where the opportunity is. And it sounds mm-hmm. like your strategy has shifted you know, over the years as, as things change. Mm-hmm. And deals are getting built to suit, built to rent. Deals are getting harder. New construction's getting more difficult. So what are you looking for in terms of opportunity, you know, moving into the future, say the rest of 2022, or, you know, as we just move into the 2020s, what do you think? Well, for Main Street investors, it's just going to be harder. We've got to deal with iBuyers that are at this point, even though Zillow's out, you've got OfferPad who went public and who are really spreading their wings into most secondary markets. So our job as Main Street is go, okay, they're taking the easy ones. They're not a we buy ugly houses brand. They're more, (laughs) although OfferPad is known for doing more renovations, Redfin as well. But they, for the most part, wants the easy ones. They're not going to deal with people problems and they're not going to deal with hoarder houses or like big outdated houses, it's just way too risky. And the supply chain is really causing a problem. Not going to do it. So investors, we've got to get better at hard things. And some of that is really paying attention to your local legislation. And I'll give you some really great examples. In 2017, California started talking about accessory dwelling units. Are you familiar with the term? I am, but let's not assume that our... our Yeah. And it's important that nationwide investors understand this concept because Mm -hmm. I think it's going to happen because a lot of us are having affordable housing conversations for the first time in some of these secondary markets because California is just bleeding people. (laughs) Accessory dwelling unit, it happens on a single family lot where you've got the primary and you can build a secondary structure or carve out space within a basement, an attic above the garage. There's a lot of different ways it can look, but it's called an accessory dwelling unit or ADU. They're huge. Over two years, the state of California by right made it available to landlords as well. doesn't matter if you're on a single family zone, they squashed a lot of the, the games that cities were playing. There's very limited parking requirements if you're within a certain distance from like a half mile from a major, like a bus artery or transportation kind of access. So it's a huge opportunity because in California, land is so expensive. So if you can build something, let's say you can build up to 1200 square feet, but if you build 750 square feet and under for the state of California, the localities aren't being able to charge you almost anything at impact fees, which is fantastic. So I can go from a single family home or rental build the secondary unit up to 1200 square feet, which is a small three bedroom or a nice two bedroom. It's enough space. Yeah. And if it cost me 150, 200,000, when's the last time I've been able to buy anything in California for that price? Never. <laughs> or it's been, it's been a while. So actually you can triplex size. If you're a homeowner and you're looking to live in the space, you can even convert the garage to a junior accessory dwelling unit, which is attached to the house. 
and have three different units. You just have to live in one. So imagine being a senior that wants to live on a cruise ship. You create a garage space for yourself to land when you're not on a cruise ship, but you rent out the other houses. It's a game changer. We also have two bits of legislation, SB9 and SB10, that just came out in California that does away with single family zoning pretty much in major metro areas. So multifamily, you need to be paying attention. This isn't just for ADUs count for multifamily as well. If you have a four unit in California, you can build another four. And for the sake of financing, by the way, it's still four unit with four ADU. So you still qualify for one to four. So multifamily, I know it's, you've been, had a really hot market as well over the last decade or so. So, you know, sometimes it's looking at those local opportunities. That's something else Wall Street is not tackling right now. They want easy ones. This is not easy, but this is a cool long-term play at the moment when we have lifetime low interest rates. It's pretty fun. Awesome. Well, one of the things that I really appreciate about experienced real estate investors is that the mindset is really always looking for opportunity and also always confident that there is opportunities looking for it. And also knowing that if you look long enough, you're going to find genuine opportunity. Now, when I you know, had read about ADUs in the past, I was skeptical as to whether that's going to quote unquote, fix the affordable housing issue in California in particular. But it sounds like based on your description, there is a lot more opportunity to add units, which is really what's going to make the difference in terms of housing. A great example of this is in LA, the city of LA raised a $1.2 billion fund in 2016 to build 10,000 affordable units. There's only 1,000 that have landed since then, so five years on, and they're on par to hit 500, I think they're at 567,000 per unit (laughs) created. If they would have taken that same $1.2 billion and given it to local investors financing accessory dwelling units with some kind of affordable housing clause, they could have leveraged existing infrastructure. It would have happened within a year instead of we're on five and only 1,000 out of 10,000. That's what I mean. It's just... I'm part of, I got selected to be part of this government affordable housing thing by our local council of governments. If you're not familiar with it, California has just released their affordable housing numbers to the local cities. And the cities are like, this is not possible. And the state saying, if you do not get this done, we are going to take funding away from you, transportation projects, community block grants. So they're under a lot of pressure. They have eight years. Our area has to create over 1 million units. And I'm one of the only private citizens or small businesses in here. I'm like, you guys have to stop thinking you're going to do this. Communicate with the people that own this stuff already. You don't have to find, you have to communicate. That's all you have to do and create some guidelines of what you'd like to see and how to be a good neighbor. You're leveraging existing infrastructure. You don't have to build new schools. I mean, it's amazing. So there is a lot of opportunity as a local Main Street person plugged into your local markets. And by the way, I need our community to be a little bit more plugged in and the trusted advisor at the local level. That's It's huge. It's important. You need to know how to play nice and to not be seen as salesy. Your solution, they, you are the good guy. You are not separate yourself from Wall Street. You're Main Street. You live here, work here, give here, all that stuff. You do what Wall Street can't. So I have always been here for Main Street and I will continue to be so. But the opportunity is in those weird little legislative things that Wall Street won't pay attention to because it doesn't scale. Well, I, I really appreciate that. I think one thing in particular is that, you know, there's a certain contingent, if you will, that, you know, runs areas like California that sees investors or anybody that, you know, is looking to make a profit at, at what we do as, you know, the enemy mm-hmm. and the idea of taking that fund that they had and 
lending it to or making it available to investors who are going to make a return, but ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, they're going to get the affordable housing that they want. That's just unbelievable anathema. We're never going to do that. We'd rather make this really ineffectually use the capital as the government than mm-hmm. in any way participate an investor earning a return. At least that's maybe my maybe cynical take. <laughs> it is a cynical take, and they keep trying to pin us up. It drives me absolutely bonkers when they try to pin us as the bad guy. I'm all, what are you talking about? Like we provide housing. It's up to you to create the units and zoning and to make the process easy. The National Association of Home Builders just released their data on what it costs to build government impact fees on a build. And average nationwide is $100,000 roughly. So that means with land in the Inland Empire, I don't think you can buy land for less than 150 to 200 grand. And so if you have another 100 grand, so with no sticks and bricks out the door, you're already at 300 grand. And it's just, how do you build something when you can't make it affordable? You can't charge somebody 600 in rent when it's costing you $500,000 to build. That math doesn't make sense. So yeah, maybe the government does have to build that stuff, but that's their problem. So I keep pushing back on that concept that the landlords are bad. I'm like, you need to be pointing the fingers back at you. You are the one who controls us. In a state like California, where you've got Democrat majority, it's interesting that we can't get housing right and done because they can do whatever they want. It's crazy. It's such a... At least at a high level, it's such an obvious problem. Exactly like, like you said, you can't even get sticks and bricks for, you can't even get started with that until you're 300 grand in. And mm-hmm. well, obviously, okay, well, we can't build the house or make it available for less than that. If that's the base cost, then what's the solution here? I mean, mm-hmm. it's wild. I'm great that LA is having this opportunity because they're being very transparent about it. And they're going to see how much California spends on unaffordable housing. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Can I talk about the opportunity zone opportunity Please, as well? Absolutely. It'd be great. We were teaching our group opportunity zones a couple of years ago, and I'm a nerd, as you can tell. So I interviewed economic development, small business, and I found out that a mile away from me in downtown Riverside, the entirety of our downtown is an opportunity zone. I'm all, why haven't I heard about this? Why isn't the city talking about this? Because I was at the point very engaged in like the chamber and whatnot. So I met with them and they're like, yeah, it's complicated. We're just going to create something of our own. I'm all, what? What are you talking about? Most of the time I'm having opportunity zone conversations right now that investors that are in the stock market or in crypto that have always wanted to be in real estate, but can't efficiently do it because they're going to get taxed when they sell their assets. Opportunity zones, it's any capital gains, you can move to real estate. It's pretty brilliant. So I don't think it's great for everyone. You have to have a 10-year timeline. So for younger investors just getting started, it makes a little bit more sense. But I don't know. Meet with your CPA. It's not just on the construction side. If you're running a small business from within an opportunity zone as well, you get some cool tax breaks. So you just have to play a little bit. But let me stack this kind of opportunity. In downtown Riverside are a lot of zones that have been upzoned, a lot of lots that have been upzoned. So you went from an R1 to an R3. It still has a single family on it. So in property radar, I'm able to quickly pull up houses. With current ADU laws, that technically means on those lots, I can build five additional units. Five. So I can buy a house, even at full retail, knowing that I'm going to create five extra units on that because I can build technically up to a triplex and then ADU laws allow me to design up to three additional accessory dwelling units, turning a single family into basically a sixplex that will qualify for financing under FHA one to four. And you're not at risk of getting, having your margins say destroyed by a permitting process or, or anything like that. No, it's state law. So 
the state law sets the boundaries. The cities can be more flexible. Like San Diego out here has been known to, to do some creative things. Example would be a tiny home as an ADU. Tiny homes falls under DMV rules. It's personal property, but they're willing to accept it. And those numbers, the cities are going to be able to count towards those affordable housing numbers, oddly enough. So I think we're at a point where they really need the private sector to step up and Main Street. We just have to be there to meet the moment, professional data-driven, to be there, that trusted advisor at the local level. Believe me, Wall Street's not there and they're not doing it. Awesome. Well, I love how you're looking for opportunity here and using what is available to make this all happen. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Aaron, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I think so. (laughs) First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? It was converting to a Roth and buying my first piece of real estate in a self-directed IRA. Nice, nice. Okay, so took a probably an old 401k, converted it to a Roth IRA, and then acquired a property with a self-directed strategy. Yeah, that is 4X in value and has been spitting out income since 2012. That's been great. Awesome. Well, we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? The worst investment is just a rental that was a learning house. I was wholesale the property with a tenant in it, and the tenant was a hoarder. The house was old. Yeah, it was just hard. A flood happened. All the doors fell out. As soon as we closed, we found out we had $20,000 worth of trees we had to remove because they were dead and we were in the wind (laughs) zone. It was just... It was a learning house. I, I needed it. Thank God. You know, luckily the market saved my butt in California. I made all that money back and more. But yeah, it let's say it didn't cash flow for the entire time that I owned it. <laughs> my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? The most important thing is it's okay to be you. I think I had fallen into the trap of being with a very having a very famous flipping father and being from a flipper family. And it's just not my personality. I don't enjoy it. It's stressful. It's a lot of work. I love being a landlord. I read John Schaub's book about buying one house at a time, buy 10 and you're done kind of thing. It changed my life. So one of the things that I teach is uh, Property Radar has a concept of chocolate versus the peanut butter. Chocolate being who you are, who you bring to the table, and peanut butter being the data. And when those two things come together is when the recess is made. And it's a really good analogy. Unless you get that chocolate right and realize you can bring whoever you are, it's going to be really difficult to back you with the right data. And just a quick example, if you're an introvert and I start throwing you door knocking, you're going to hate your life. <laughs> but there are other strategies I could throw at you that'll get you really excited as an introvert You know, who love operations. I can do that. So it's okay to be you, show up, be honest with yourself, and there's room for you in this business. Awesome. I love that. As someone who identifies as a, an introvert, despite all this extroverted type stuff, that I like to do. I can certainly understand that. And I also now need to go track down some Reese's peanut butter cups, but that is neither here nor there. Uh, Well, thank you for joining us today. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to track you down, where can they find you? The Norrisgroup.com. Actually, we've been podcasting since 07 as well. So it's a little bit more California focused, but if you've never heard the accessory dwelling unit conversation, I recently did an interview with Christy Sertwell where she was an early adopter, got burned a few times and the things she's learned from ADUs, I think it's worth listening. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today to everybody out there. Thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. 
I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.